Well, I can see them coming down the aisle after the service. A young couple, wife, six months pregnant. Normally, they came to the church, and she had that pregnancy glow. And they were in that stage where they were excited about their firstborn. But today, that day was a different day. It was a day where I watched them come down an aisle after preaching a sermon, and I saw her tears. And I saw the shame in his face. And we sat, and we cried together, and we prayed together. And I heard a really awful story that he shared about his infidelity. And at the end of it, I'll be honest, I wanted to wring his neck. In my injustice, I wanted to wring his neck. But they were together after this. And they were coming to church together. It was a miracle in and of itself. And I sat and I talked to them and I looked at her and I asked her, can you try? Will you try? And she honestly answered and said, I don't know. I want to. And I looked at him and I said, will you be accountable? Are you done? Will you seek the long road of forgiveness and trust and building trust that needs to happen? In a nutshell, she had every right, biblically speaking, most people would say, to leave. So the question at the end of that conversation, that difficult conversation that is seared in my brain, it really came down to, are you willing to embrace grace? Are you willing to extend grace, and are you willing in your shame to receive grace? You know, when we think about grace, you know, at at a distance, it's this warm and fuzzy feeling. It's a warm and fuzzy word. We name our children after this word. We ooze it theologically at 50,000 feet. And we do that rightfully, because God's grace is... An unbelievable thing. And if you know Christ, you have received His grace. You've believed that Christ is the only way in which you can have forgiveness and eternal life. That you can't do anything to earn God's favor. That it's only through God's grace that you might have forgiveness and eternal life. See, grace is God providing what you and I can't. And he provided his son that you and I might have life. Do you embrace grace? Do you extend and receive grace in big ways like that or in small ways every day in your home? Are you growing in grace? Or does grace just rub you wrong? You find it hard to forgive and hard to receive forgiveness. Or maybe you embrace Maybe what I would call a counterfeit grace that just says, I'm going to stick my hand in the cookie jar and I'll ask for forgiveness later. That's cheap grace. That's not grace. See, grace comes with a cost. When you think about the cost that God has given in grace, that you receive grace because Christ broke his body and shed his blood for you and me, there is a cost to grace. 
That is true for Jesus and it's true for the woman in that situation, that deep, hard situation that I just shared with you. The text this morning will call us to embrace grace. The text will ooze with grace. Turn with me to the book of Titus. If you have a Bible, it's page 998 in the Bible on your seat there. And we'll be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 as we start this series. I want to take a few minutes before we begin, and then we're going to come back to that. I want to take a few minutes and just give you some background, um, what we are stepping into as we step into the book of, of Titus. So Paul, the apostle Paul, calls Titus, a co-laborer in the faith, one of his green berets in the faith, to go to the island of Crete. There looks like to be multiple churches on the island of Crete, And um, Paul says in chapter 1 of Titus, verses 12 and 13, he says this about the Cretans. He says that they, actually he says there's a prophet in Crete. One of the Cretans says about himself and says about his own people that they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That sounds like a sci-fi movie, like the latest sci-fi movie. That was supposed to be a little bit funny. So this is the context in Crete. These are churches These are people, a people, a pagan society, a pagan island who are liars, gluttons, and evil beasts. And so Paul is sending Titus there to the churches there to set things right. A little background, if you'll give me a minute. You've got a, you probably have great study Bibles, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time walking through all the background. We could be here all day. But I want to tell you about Paul's relationship with Titus. So in the book of Acts chapter 15, there's a problem that's brewing in the church because the Jews who have come to know Jesus are starting to believe that um, you not only believe the gospel, but you have to follow the law, particularly that you have to be circumcised. And so what Paul does is he takes his trusty co-worker, his green beret with him, who's not a Jew, who's a Gentile in Titus, and he takes Barnabas as well, who is not a Jew, but a Gentile, and he takes them to the council in Acts chapter 15 as living examples of people who know Christ and love Christ and serve Christ who have not been circumcised. And so that's the first time you see Titus in the Bible. And here's what you see Paul doing with Titus. He sends him to Corinth first. I want you to think about, if you know your Bible, think about the city of Corinth. There are probably more problems in Corinth than any other church. And guess who Paul sends? He sends Titus in to deal with the Corinthian problems, and there's a lot of them. Go read it. And then you get to chapter 7 and chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, and you see more about the character of Titus. And so at some point, go and check that out. But Titus, Paul says of Titus that he is reliable. It says of Titus that he is faithful, that he is a hard worker, that he can come with tact into a situation and remedy the situation. This is the guy that you send into tough places, and that's exactly what Paul is calling Titus to do in coming to Crete. And so you're going to see that in the book of Titus. You're going to see um, false teaching in the church. Um, You're going to see all of these things, and what Paul is calling Titus to do is really two things. Teach sound doctrine. Get these folks up to speed on what is true and what is not true, and practice godliness. And he's going to come first to the elders and say, you need to be sound in doctrine. You need to be able to teach and exhort in sound doctrine. But guess what? 
You better be the husband of one wife. You, you better be self-controlled. You better be temperate. So belief and behavior. And then he's going to come to Titus and say, that's true for you too. And then he's going to come to the church in chapter 3. And he's going to say to them, hey, you need to respect the authorities. You need to care for one another. You need to believe truth. And you need to pursue godly lives. Isn't that what sanctification is? If you know Christ, the whole pursuit of life is going, I believe this, and God calls me to live in that. That's not so easy. I'm a preacher, and I've got to sit in, this, in a text every week, and then I've got to live that out in front of my family. And they can tell you that I don't live that out perfectly. Do you? There's a disconnect sometimes in our lives between belief and behavior. Paul said it this way, the very thing that I want to do, I don't. And what does he need? He needs God's grace. Thanks be to God for his grace. And so let's look at grace in verses 1 through 4 in this chapter. Let's read it together. Titus chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 say this, Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, there it is, theme, truth and godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching for which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, and common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The first thing I want to tell you this morning as we look at those four verses is that there's the depth of God's grace for us is extravagant. The depth of God's grace for you is extravagant. Where it says Paul is servant of God, um, it's an interesting phrase. Uh, usually in greetings in the New Testament, Paul says that he's a servant of Christ. Here says, he says he's a servant of God. I think what's going on is, um, if you look at the Old Testament, you see Moses and Abram, Abraham calling themselves servants of God. I think he's appealing to his Jewish audience. And then he's, it says that he is an apostle. And an apostle in that day is a sent out one, a messenger. But the Gentiles in Crete would see the word apostle and say, he must be important. So he's talking about his authority because in that day, um, apostles in a Greek world, in a Gentile world, were important emissaries of the king. And so I think he's appealing to both audiences there. But I want to stop and just think about the Apostle Paul for a minute. It says that he was a servant of God, that he was an apostle. Think about his life before he was Paul, he was Saul. What did he do? Saul believed that he was a servant of God, and what did he do? He was a terrorist to Christians. He persecuted Christians. Go look at the book of Acts, about chapter 7, the first Christian martyr. Paul is there persecuting Stephen. He was there at the martyrdom of Stephen. He believed he was a servant of God doing that. If you go to Philippians 3, you see Paul's, Saul's resume, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to zeal, unmatched. He believed that he was a servant of God. And then what happens? Acts chapter 9 happens, right? Jesus shows up and says, who, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who am I talking to? See, he's converted in chapter 9. 
Not only is he converted and has to sit on the bench because of his persecution and his life opposed to Christ, what did God, Jesus want him to do? You went from, to, to, from terrorizing Christians, and I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. I'm not just going to save you, but I'm going to use you to bring the gospel to the Gentile kings. Most of your New Testament is written by a murderer. Epistles are written by a guy who was heartily approving the murder of Christians. You see the depth of God's grace for Paul? This man went from being a terrorist of Christians to a servant of Christ, to an apostle. So let me ask you this morning, can you see the depth of God's grace in Paul's life? If God could redeem and use a man like Paul, do you think he might be able to redeem and continue to use you and me? I want you to see a few passages. Here's what Jesus thinks about grace. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And from the fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and it was good. But grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. So we have grace in Christ. Jesus said he came in grace and truth. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. It says this, In Christ we have redemption. Meaning that we were bought out of slavery. The imagery would be the exodus. Remember when they were in slavery and they were redeemed from that? We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches, the riches of his grace, which he lavished, think about that word, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We love Jason's Deli. They are genius. It's a genius place because they have ice cream, right? And our kids want ice cream. And it's a win-win it's a when we decide where we're going to go eat after church. Um, one of my kids has a sweet tooth. And so when she brings... Um, when she brings the ice cream back, you can't really see the ice cream because it's got so much chocolate syrup on it. And I say, would you, would you, would you like some ice cream with the syrup, babe? It's lavished upon it. And that's the way grace worked in Paul's life, and that's the way grace works in our lives. That Christ has lavished his grace upon us. It's not something we de- deserve, and it's surely not something that we can earn. But he's lavished it Upon us, And this is the experience of the Apostle Paul. Remember when he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. For some of you, there may be a caveat that's important here. There is a cost to grace, and it's high. Jesus bore that. We don't believe in cheap grace, because cheap grace is not grace at all. There are certainly consequences for sin that we all have to deal with. The guy in the story that I shared in the beginning... He's still dealing with some of the consequences of that sin. He checks in a lot with his wife. There are consequences for our sin. It doesn't cheapen grace. And maybe you're the person here this morning that you say to yourself, my sin is too great and I've hidden it for too long and it's persisted for too long. God could never forgive me. And I think God would say to you, my grace is greater than all of your sin." Amen? But where does grace originate from? Where, does, where do we get grace from? Look at the second part of verse 1. So, 
So Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ, look at this, for the sake of the faith of, what does it say? God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Listen, the purpose of Paul's apostleship is for the faith of God's people that they grow in the knowledge of the truth that lead, literally leads to godliness. But Paul doesn't tell them what they must do to qualify to be God's elect. He doesn't tell them what they must do to qualify for God's elect. He speaks to their faith that characterizes those who are God's. That they believe upon Christ. See, our eternal status is not determined, is, is determined by the love of a heavenly Father, not by our works. See, election, the idea of election, reminds us that God chooses His people to be His own out of His mercy. You didn't come to faith because you were smart enough. You didn't come to faith because you come to church a lot, or you do good things, or your moral code is just a little bit higher than the person sitting next to you. That's not why you came to faith. You came to faith, and I came to faith because God chose in His love for us, to extend His mercy to us. You see, grace is God providing what? Grace is God providing for us and what we can't provide for ourselves. And mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. You see, the Scripture, if you look at a number of passages, here's what you see. Ephesians chapter 2, look at this. I want you to think about God's mercy toward us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. You have it there? Look at these verses. He's already told the Ephesians that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. I want you to think about that term, dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't have any ability to do anything. And then you come to verse 4 and it says this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love in which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, mercy is a gift that God grants to us that we can never earn because we are dead men and women walking that God has to reach down and breathe life into us. Remember, you remember John chapter 3? Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and what does he say? What do I do? You must be born again. And Nicodemus is confused, isn't he? What do you mean I must be born again? I can't go back into my mother's womb. No, 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 you, you must be born again. You think about a child. You think about a lot of young moms here. Um, you didn't contribute anything to your mother giving birth to you in the same way we don't, initi we don't initiate anything. And God's mercy reaching down to us and calling us to himself and breathing new life through the Spirit into us. The first act in salvation is God coming to us. And then he gives us gifts of repentance and faith. So in real time, in real space, you believed. We can talk about that later if you want to. There's a lot to unpack there. But that's what Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says. It's his mercy that extends grace to us. Romans chapter 9 says it this way. This is a hard text. Sometimes people avoid this text. He's speaking of Jacob and Esau. And he says, though they were not yet born, 
and had done nothing either good or bad. So our salvation and God extending mercy to us isn't God looking down the corridors of time and saying, he's going to be good, he's going to be bad. Think about Jacob and Esau. If you had a moral code that you need to unpack for Jacob and Esau, I think Esau beats Jacob. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look at Jacob's life and you look at Esau's life, you would say Esau is better. Do you know what the word Jacob means? It means heel grabber. He's grabbing, even from the beginning, he was grabbing his brother. But here's the reason. Before they had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might be continued, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. One more slide. Maybe. No slide. The verse says, God will give mercy in whom he provides mercy and compassion in whom he desires compassion. I'm glad I knew that verse. It's really good. Right? So God's grace is God providing what we can't provide. We would never choose it if we could. Mercy is God not giving us what we rightfully have earned and deserved. That sounds to many ears like it's not fair. That it's not fair. You know what I tell my kids often? Hey, you and I don't deserve fair. You know what fair is? Fair is the wages of sin is life or death. Death. God pulls us out of death, all of us, that he chooses. That's how it works. R.C. Sproul says it this way. We are creatures made from the dirt. That God made from the dirt. When you look at the Old Testament or New Testament, you see Job and Habakkuk. When they've got a problem with God, God's response is often what? Where were you when I made the heavens? Where were you? And they're humbled by the glory and majesty of God and his grace and his mercy. Happy to talk to you about those things later. But God's mercy is God's means of showing us grace. Maybe you're the type of person this morning who is here and you tend to despair. You tend to despair in the, in the face of weakness. And you tell yourself, I'm not able to measure up to God's requirement. If that's you this morning, I think God would say to you, listen, remember, remember, I don't save you on the basis of your ability, but I save you on the basis of my mercy alone. I save you and I keep you on the basis of my son who does measure up. So my question is, if I'm sitting and listening, okay, there's a depth to God's grace. There's a measure to God's grace that is extravagant. And His mercy is the means. Is there an expiration date on this deal? This sounds way too good. See, their next point in verse 2 and 3 is this. God's grace for His own people extends to eternity. God's grace for His people those who know Christ, extends to eternity. Look at the text, verse 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, in which God, who never lies, promised before, here it is, before the ages began. So God has given us His grace and mercy before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word, so present, through the preaching in which I have been entrusted by the command of God, Our Savior. Listen, Paul is showing us what I would call the highway of God's grace in verses 2 and 3. God's grace extends from eternity past to present to eternity future. The promise of eternal life, as, as Paul says here, 
This is a sure hope. I don't know if you, when you think about hope, like, I hope the Texans win today, tomorrow, right? They're not going to win tomorrow. They're playing the Saints. Sorry. I got questions. I want them to win. Don't hear me wrong. I want them to win, but that's a tough game. That's a maybe. This is not a maybe. This is a sure hope. This is a sure confidence in who God is and what He's done at the cross. It's a sure hope that we can count on. The sure hope of eternal life because of Christ. There's a promise here. And it's rooted in the fact that not, God is not only gracious, gracious and merciful, but God doesn't lie. Remember what we said about the Christians? That they were liars. You see the contrast Paul is making? God doesn't lie. And the other gods of the day would lie and they wouldn't tell the truth. But my God doesn't lie. And the way that I know that is because He keeps His Word. He's given us His Word and we can believe it. And how do I hear this? I hear this from preaching. Preaching is just heralding. You know the guy that comes before the king to tell about the king and his greatness? That's what preaching is. It's heralding. It's helping a church understand the Bible, understand it, and apply it to their lives. So this is what you see in verse 3. So God's grace extends for eternity for those who know him. I want you to see this in a different text, if you're having a problem with that. In a different text in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, here's what Paul says to Timothy. He's talking about the gospel, and he's talking about the truth of the gospel. And he's talking about Christ, and he says this, Christ who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Look at the past here. Which he gave to us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. In which we have been manifested, sound like this passage, through the appearing of our Savior. That's present. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. We got the second part. All right, we're good. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until when? Until that day. Do you see it? Past, present, future. God's grace extends to eternity. Maybe you're the realist here. Maybe you're the type of person who says, you know, pastor, I can resist temptation for a while, but I can't guarantee I can maintain my resolve. See, God offers you the assurance that His grace doesn't end. Please don't hear that as license. That's not license. Romans 6, chapter 1 says what? Shall we continue to sin that grace might increase? What is Paul, what's Paul's response to that? His own question. May it never be. Should we continue to sin that grace might increase? Meaning, well, I can just continue to sin and God can continue to just to offer me grace. I don't think that's God's heart at all. That wasn't Paul's heart at all. We abuse grace when we think of it that way. But it does mean that God's grace, if you're a believer in Christ, will continue to extend for you. That you can't go past His grace in your life. But there's something about this point that I've got to clarify. When I say God's grace extends for eternity, if you don't yet know Christ, if you're here and you don't yet know Christ, I've got to be really honest with you. I'm not coming after you. I've just got to be really, really honest with you encourage you and challenge you 
God's grace will expire on you. If you don't know Christ, Christ is the way in which God's wrath is satisfied. Christ is the way in which you experience the grace of God. And if you don't yet know Christ, you need to know that God is not only loving and gracious and merciful, but He's at the same time, He is a just God. And the Bible says that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And the Bible teaches that unless you have believed on Christ, that you don't have eternal life, that the grace of eternal life to spend with Him, that heaven is not your home. So if you don't know Christ here this morning, I would just encourage you to remember and consider Christ that His death and resurrection is the way in which you can experience God's grace for eternity. You could say, well, that's great, but what does grace produce in the here and now? You've talked a lot up here about mercy and grace and the extent of it and what it is, but what about now? What does that look like now? And say this, grace produces peace and unity in our lives and in our church family. Grace produces peace and unity in our lives and in our church family. If you look at verse 4, it says to Titus, my true child, and in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a common way in which Paul finishes uh, an introduction. Grace and peace to you. But these aren't just words that are um, used just like we would use, how you doing today? I'm doing great. Have a great day. These are important words for the Christian to understand that grace produces in our life not only peace with God, but the peace of God. And then you you see him saying to Titus, who's a Greek, You are my true child. Do you see that? Paul's a Jew. He's a Greek. You're my true child. The idea is that Paul has led Titus to faith in Christ. But he's my true child. He's not just the child that is adopted, that doesn't have the same blessings and benefits, but he has all the benefits. So Jew and Greek together in a, what does it say? A common faith. The old preachers used to say it this way, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That Titus and Paul are in the same place under the cross. Paul's not here and Titus here because Paul's an apostle and he's done all these things or because he's a Jew and Titus isn't. The ground underneath the cross is flat. And that has implications about how we see one another. When I think of the West... I'm trying to remember what I'm supposed to call this place. 1488, 2978... It's like the fusion of a lot of different places. It's the fusion of the Woodlands. It's the fusion of Conroe and Montgomery and Tomball, I guess. Help me out if I'm missing something. Magnolia that comes over. There are a lot of different people represented even in this little culture of this little place at at the crossroads at 1488 and 2978. But this is saying to us that there's a unity that's produced within a family between Paul and Titus and this church that crosses all those barriers and all those lines of race, of class, of preference, what zip code you're from, what kind of work you're in, that there's a common faith that we share as the body of Christ. You know, I would tell you, um, 
one of the challenges for us um, with our little guy is that he looks around as a little boy from Ethiopia who looks different than us, and he sees a lot of distinction. He sees a ton of distinction. He just sees a distinction in the color of our skin, in the color of most of your skin at school. He sees a whole lot of distinction. And so what we do is we spend a lot of time talking about how common things are with one another. Hey, can you feel my heart? I have a heart too. Can you... My ears, they listen. My mouth, they speak. You know, if you take the color off, we kind of look like each other as Thornton's right here. And so I'm, we're trying to help him see the commonalities, not just the distinctions. We live in a world that all we see is distinctions. We see distinctions in race, and we see distinctions in class, in politics. And in the church, we have a common faith at the foot of the cross. The, the gospel makes the things that are common to you, way more important than the distinctions that you have with the person sitting next to you. This is the truth that we would say that God's grace produces a peace and unity in our lives. Listen, that couple that I told you about, I didn't quite finish that story. I'm sorry if that's been bugging you. But I am happy to tell you that they they are choosing... They are choosing to do the hard work of starting to forgive, of extending grace. I asked the question to them and said, are you willing to try? And about three years later, they're still trying, and they're still at it. And she's pregnant with another child. But you know what? There were consequences. He changed jobs. They've moved but they were walking and embracing grace. Do you think they would have experienced the depth of God's grace if they would have settled for law and justice? Do you think that they would be experiencing the mercy of God, the length of grace? See, I think they've experienced and seen the effect of God's grace in their marriage to keep it together. And there is a certain depth that they have in their marriage now that they wouldn't have had. See, there's a place for law and justice. It's in the very nature of God. But my contention to you this morning would be, as you think about your own life, grace grows godliness. Grace, there's a cost to it, but it grows godliness. And I pray as you leave here today and you think about the areas of life where you need to embrace grace, maybe you need to extend grace, maybe you need to receive grace, that I pray that you would remember that grace is what grows godliness. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to open your word. We thank you for an introduction, four verses, and a greeting that have so much truth for us to unpack and us to apply to our lives. Lord, make us a people of grace. We've got a lot of work to do. I know I do. So do that work in my heart. When I want to seek justice, when I want to use the law, even maybe even biblically and rightfully so, Lord, I pray that, that I wouldn't cheapen grace, that I would understand there's a cost and consequences to sin and my actions, but Lord, I pray that it would be my heart 
to extend grace in the same way that it's your heart, Father, to extend grace to me in Jesus' name. Amen.